This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan. If there's one thing Malaysians can agree on is that wages in this country have been pretty abysmal. We have a shrinking middle class. 35% of working people in the formal sector earn below 2,000 ringgit and the median wage is only 2,600 ringgit, which means 50% of the country earns less than that. One policy initiative brought about by the Minister of Economy, Rafizi Ramli, is the progressive wage model, which draws inspiration from a similar system in Singapore. The minister recently tabled the policy-wide paper in Parliament, which is what we are going to be unpacking on the show today with Kevin Zhang, Senior Research Officer at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. Welcome to the show, Kevin. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be back on BFM. Before we discuss solutions, let's discuss root causes. Why are wages in Malaysia so low? It's a really complex question. And I think a lot of it really comes down to Malaysia's status in the international order. So every country has GDP. That is the gross output of your economic productive goods and right. services. But the share of wages as a proportion of GDP varies tremendously, tremendously across countries. So in Malaysia, only 35%. So in other words, for every $1 of goods created, only 35%, 35 cent goes towards wages. Whereas in Singapore, it's about 45%. Mm-hmm. In US, in UK, it's about 55%. Some countries even hit up to 60%. It goes to wages. So what it means there is that in Malaysia, a lot more of the GDP goes towards companies' profits because we know that in Malaysia, taxes are not high compared to other OECD countries. And so... But we, the, Malaysia is not unique because a lot of other developing countries, uh, especially even China, other um, Southeast Asia countries, the percentage of capital share towards labor is about 35% to 40%. So it seems to be a situation where it's within the global international order, especially about how capitalism, global market works, um, because there has to be allocated a higher share of GDP towards uh, capital investment in order to compensate for the supposed political and economic risks involved in many of these middle-income countries compared to the more advanced countries. Two responses to what you just brought up. Um, number one, does a low unionization rate contribute to low wages? Um, because Malaysia's unionization rate is abysmal. We are talking about 7%. Most of the country's workforce are not unionized in any form. But at the same time, um, you know, some World Bank economists have argued that the reason why wages in Malaysia is low is less to do with, I think, a very important point that you bring up about the share of the GDP that goes to wages, but more to do with the low productivity rate in Malaysia. In fact, a World Bank economist argued that compared to many other countries with similar productivity rate, Malaysia's wages are actually higher comparatively. How do you see that? It's a hard question. Um, I'll take up maybe the unionization first, Mm -hmm. um, moving on to low productivity. So um, even if you look at some high-income countries, for example, France, continental Europe, Germany, the unionization isn't that high. They obviously had a higher unionization during the 60s and 80s. 
But if you look at it now, it's only about 20% in many of the continental European countries, which has the highest share of GDP going towards salaries. So I see that unionization, the percentage per se, isn't so much of a problem. So for example, in the France or in German context, even though you have high un- low, sorry, low unionization, but the fact remains that the unions are able to bargain on behalf of people who work in the sector, even if they are non-union members, hmm. right? So in that sense, the unions in uh, a lot of Western developed countries are still functioning for uh, wage bargainings. Uh, uh, you know, this they, they still have the role and they are able to influence a lot more uh, disproportionately larger than their union members. But the problem in Malaysia is that the 7% unionization, the thing is you don't have strong unions to bargain for wages vis-a-vis the firms, be it the SMEs, the large firms. And the whole process of Malaysia wage setting, a lot of it seems to be taken over by the government, primarily through the minimum wage, um, for example, increase to 1,005, and unions itself seems to be left out in the core, right? So I think we need to look beyond just the numbers of unions, uh, sorry, the people, number of percentages of workforce in labor unions, but look at, at the broader picture about how is uh, uh, wage bargaining determined and what is the ro- actual role that unions plays? Do they even have, are they even on the table when it comes to wage bargaining? Hmm. Yeah. Going towards your second question about la- low labor productivity, Dr. Nurhisham, the former chair of uh, EPF, mentioned that actually, uh, if you look at productivity rates between Singapore and Malaysia since the 60s, actually they are in similar trajectory. Hmm. In other words, um, you know, Malaysia doesn't seem to have much higher or lower productivity than Singapore, even though we know, of course, Singapore has much higher uh, wage structure compared to Malaysia. So I think a lot of it is also, as I said, it's about the position of your country within the international economic order. Where is, what kind of FDI, what kind of investment, what kind of products are you drawing into your country, right? Are you drawing to your country those, um, you know, mass manufacturing, there's a bit low-skilled wage the room for productivity growth is you know, rather limited. And even if you produce more of that kind of goods, the income salaries would not be able to fetch high price in national markets. Or are you like, for example, Singapore being a financial hub? So there's a, the picture is a lot more complex than just sheer productivity growth numbers per se. Right. So what I'm getting from you is it, it is complex, but perhaps one of the key things we should be looking at is the percentage of GDP that goes to wages. And in Malaysia, it's much lower than Singapore and certainly much lower than many countries in Europe. Now, Rafizi Ramli um, is, of course, putting forth this progressive wage model. The white paper is um, out. Um, The the pilot um, project or pilot stages of the the policy is going to be starting in 2024. Is this the solution to the problems that you just brought up earlier. And when you went through the white paper, what stood out to you? I wouldn't call it bizarre, but strange, right? Hmm. That Malaysia called it progressive wage model and how uh, Minister Rafizi draw explicit reference to Singapore. But there are very key differences between Singapore progressive wage model and what the Malaysian style is. The first Hmm. thing is that in Singapore progressive wage model, it is a mandatory requirement for all the particular sectors, be it they start off cleaning, security, landscaping. So all the sectors, as long as they employ local residents, which is Singaporeans or PRs, they have to pay their amount, started from 1004 But the other thing is that Malaysia's progressive wage model is a voluntary scheme, right? And it's about, you know, firms can join on a voluntary basis 
And the key thing for the benefit of readers who haven't gone through that is essentially kind of like a wage subsidy approach mm. that for firms, in order to encourage them to raise productivity, they would have to increase the salaries of their employees by sending them to trainings. And in exchange, the government will give them incentives. So 200 RM per month, fresh hires, fresh graduates, 300 RM, uh, up to 300 RM for those who are existing workers. So Malaysia's progressive wage model takes on a very different stance. And my fear is that precisely because it is a voluntary, uh, there's no like compliance mechanism to make sure that all industries gets involved. Uh, there will be a lot of industries who are able to opt out of the gate. So I think why this is matters is that essentially, especially when we are talking about the low paid work, like cleaning, security, a lot of it is about subcontracting, giving it to the lowest bidder, right? And once you have... Without a minimum wage floor, I mean, Malaysia minimum wage was 1.5 RM, but the progressive wage does not raise the wage floor in these sectors. And once there is a lack of a higher wage floor, it means that there are some firms are able to outcompete other companies by offering a lower salary to their workers. And that makes the whole entire progressive model hard to sustain because essentially you have companies competing on very unequal playing fields. For example, even if you as a company, you would like to increase the productivity of security guards for that matter, giving them a higher salaries, but you have other firms who are able to undercut you by giving them maybe only 70% of the salaries that you are paying. In that sense, it becomes really difficult for the firms who are intentional and genuine in raising the income of their workers to actually give them the training because you know, training takes up money, training takes up costs, giving them more salary, obviously, is going to be detrimental to your bottom line. So it's difficult to, in, a, in that sense, to be increase your workers' well-being where other people are not pulling their weight and paying the fair share of the game. So I think you give a good overview of the white paper. Let's break down some of that more in detail, right? So when we look at the progressive wage model, um, that Malaysia is putting out, what companies are they targeting? Because we know that about 1,000 companies have signed up for the pilot project. 1,000 sounds like a very low number to me. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, which companies specifically are they targeting for this? So based on what's available, in, at least in the public domain, uh, we do not actually know exactly what are the industry or sectors. But we do know that it has excluded the MNCs and the large companies. Right. So in other words, the progressive wage model is only applicable for SMEs and micro SMEs. So micro SME refers to firms with less than five people. Uh, SMEs maybe like 50 to 100 or something. Yeah. But it will be leaving out the large uh, uh, companies with the rationale is that large companies have more resources. They are able to raise their workers' salaries without having government uh, subsidies and it's only the micro and the SME which has this productivity problem and therefore the government is stepping in. Yeah, so beyond that, the size of companies, we don't really know why the sectors is being targeted. But shouldn't the progressive wage model first and foremost target these larger firms, multinational corporations, conglomerates, GLCs and so on and so forth? Because like you said, they have the resources. So shouldn't the government intervene and force them to pay high wages. What do you think of that? Yeah, so I think the disclaimer is I have um, no background information on how and why Rafizi only decided to target SME and micro-SME, but I, I guess I can hazard a few guesses is that if you look at wage data in Malaysia, 
well, even though everyone, you know, is having this middle income trap, but um, to be fair, uh, the median income for large companies, it is about a few hundred ringgit higher than SMEs and micro SME, which mm. is not surprising because a lot of the SMEs, for example, you mentioned manufacturing, a lot of the SMEs and micro SMEs, they are essentially subcontractors, right? Essentially, you get smaller parts of the cake, whereas the large companies, they are the main contractors, you know, they, they are able to set the uh, conditions of the contract. So um, at least if you look at median numbers, uh, large companies has a, a higher wage on average, right? Uh, regardless of sector. Right. Uh, I think you do have a point, which is that um, because we know that the large companies, you know, if you have a thousand large companies participating in a progressive wage, then you have a much more oversized impact because the large companies obviously has a lot more workers that they hire right. and um, they also have a lot more resources to implement. So I'm suspecting it could be that actually the large companies, maybe they're not on board with the progressive wage ideas, right? Because if they have their enough resources, why would they actually need the government incentive of 200 or 300 per month per employee? Whereas it's the micro SME and the SME who are needing uh, on, on that front, which um, in that sense, it is, come to think of it, it may not be that a bad idea to help the micro SMEs because uh, it's only in July, right, that they, um, the minimum wage was actually raised from 2002 to 2005 for the micro SME. So they were given an exemption since last year. Uh, April up to this year, July, so more than a year of exemption. And I think that um, given that they have really increased their, their operating costs by a significant percent of labor costs, about 30%, um, it's going to be hard for micro SME to get them to further increase the salary of their employees unless there is some government incentive or assistance provided to them, at least as a form of interim transition support, right? So maybe from 2002, the employees at micro SME are earning up to 2005 just July onwards and with progressive wage models there's a chance maybe they can increase up to 1.8 or 2k so I do think that from uh, SME and micro SME you know it's easier to get them on board uh, because you know of the power imbalance between them versus the government compared to the large multinational companies which you know they they, they do have a lot more bargaining power in the grand scheme of things yeah. So how does that aspect compared to the Singapore's um, progressive wage model um in Singapore, do large, you know, conglomerates, multinational corporations, you know, these huge um, GLC type um, companies and, and things like that, do they get exempted from the Singapore progressive wage model? No. So the Singapore progressive wage model applies, which is why it's um, different from Malaysia. Singapore progressive wage models operates on the sectoral basis. So, right. for example, cleaning security landscaping they started from this but recently they move on to even fmb uh, drivers you know like truck drivers so right. as long as you are in that sector regardless the size of your firm you have to pay the minimum amount stipulated right and i'll go on to another point which is wage ladder which malaysia haven't uh, mentioned that but malaysia seems that the focus even on how you talk about the minimum wage is being set it is focused on the size of the firm so it sense that policymakers in Singapore and Malaysia, they are really looking at different things. In Malaysia, you're trying to ensure how the small firms, micro firms, not get crowded out by the competition. Whereas in Singapore, they are looking at industries and sectors, which has its pros and cons of either way. But I guess in Malaysia, it's precisely because you know, it's a larger country. You have East Malaysia, Sabah, Sarawak, and you, know, in, 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 you have rural areas with really small firms. And for them, you, know, you can't 
use the same benchmark vis-a-vis the large corporations in KL, right? So I, I think maybe there's some rational there. But the other thing is also that Malaysia, at least based on what is released, um, Rafizi talks about, um, what do you call it? Um, skills ladder progression, retraining. But the incentive that the government offers is up to 200 uh, ringgit. Whereas in Singapore, apart from just being a sectoral basis, regardless of firm size, there is also clear progression. For example, in Singapore, the cleaning sector, they start off by um, being the cleaner in, for example, indoors, right? That's about when it started, it was about, I think, 1,000 or 1,002. But on that ladder, if you progress yourself up to working as a cleaner in, for example, outdoor areas, if you operate the machinery, then you get an increase in your pay. So there is some sense of career progression within those sectoral development, which I think for the Rafizi one, to be fair, you know, the plan was just announced a few days ago. So maybe there's more things yet to be announced, but at least for what we know, there don't seem to be a clear progression apart from these big mentions of skills training schemes. But it's not surprising because if they are going to operate on the size of the firm basis rather than on a sectoral approach, then it's really hard for the government to plan out the career ladder for each of the industries because they are like, infinite amount of industries out there so I'm just saying that the approach and the angle that Malaysia has taken is very different from Singapore and that would have obviously different mechanisms and also different implications Let's go for a quick break On the show with me today is Kevin Zhang Senior Research Officer at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute We will continue our discussion on progressive wage model after these messages Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box BFM 89.9 Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Kevin Zhang. He's a Senior Research Officer at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. And we are unpacking the progressive wage model white paper that was recently tabled by Economic Minister Rafizi Ramli. This conversation that we're having right now will also be available on podcasts. So do check us out. Um, We are available on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box podcast. We'd also really appreciate it if you could leave a review for us on Spotify. So Kevin, could you elaborate on the mechanism of the progressive wage policy as presented in the white paper? Right. So there are also some unknowns that the details have not been announced. So Mm. in order to qualify, um, the government, as I said, will give for each employees having a pay raise, the government will give 200 for fresh graduates, 300 for existing hires. But we are not sure, at least it's not announced, about what is the increase in salary that the firms have to pay in order to get the inverse, inverted commas sub-wage subsidy, right, of two or 300. Obviously, it would be more than 200 ringgit because if it's going to be 200 ringgit, that means the government is going to top up everything. So mm-hmm. the firms definitely have to play their part. It could be the firms have to top up maybe like equal amount, like for example, 200 ringgit, the government top up 200 ringgit, the employee could get around like 400 ringgit total. So we are, the government has yet to announce what is the increase in salary threshold to qualify, but we are looking easily at these people having about a four to 500 at least of salary increments. So in the exchange, these employers would have to go for training courses, they would have to go for some government-funded productivity, you know, and, and, and their attendance will be taken. And if they fail to meet the minimum benchmark, then they would be revoked from the scheme, right? In other words, they won't get the salary increments. So there's that in the picture. Obviously, what kind of training costs is not announced yet, we don't know. But 
presume that it will be similar to what Ministry, uh, Ministry of uh, Human Resource has done during COVID, where there were these government-funded training schemes, right? How effective? Uh, that's another open question, but from what we heard, some of it is not really effective. All right. So apart from that, um, there's also the reimbursement mechanism. So the other thing which might be tricky is that uh, the reimbursement for companies. So companies have to pay the increase in salary first, the whole amount, be it four or five hundred. And it is only after a period of, was it three to six months? And they have to submit this to the relevant Jabatan Kuasa, the relevant authorities. And only after three to six months, then it will be reimbursed back to the firms, right? And this might be an issue, especially for form, a smaller firms like SME, because, you know, you know, to have five employers, if you want to pay them the full wage increase for five months, and only after five months you, you get back, it's going to really affect their cash flow. So I think that moving forward, that's something the government should consider too. Is there a way to expedite the reimbursement process or to even to give on a co-funding basis, right? To, to provide the salary top-ups uh, to, the, to the employees rather than asking the firms to pay first and reimburse later. Does the progressive wage model also cover migrant labour? Um, you know, they are the ones who build our houses, build our roads, build our highways, build our MRT stations. From the details we know, we are not certain whether they have been included or not, but at least from the Singapore experience of progressive wage model, for example, I mentioned cleaning, security, landscaping mm-hmm. when it started. Even now, um, foreign workers are excluded. So the minimum threshold that I said uh, for now is 1,004 in Singapore is only relevant to Singaporean residents, Singaporean citizens and PR. So in that sense, uh, it creates kind of a distortion, right, where you have people who are working the same jobs, but... Um, sort of in that sense discriminated based on their nationality and if you're a foreign worker you might only get 60% of what the Singaporeans are being paid for. So this is how the Singapore model works. I suspect similar thing might be applicable for Malaysia where this kind of progressive wage might only apply for Malaysians which uh, in the grand scheme of things is actually very uncommon for countries within a domestic labour market to discriminate based on uh, nationality. So what I like about the minimum wage law is it doesn't discriminate. It covers everybody, both Malaysian and migrant workers. So with that in mind, should the progressive wage model be implemented in tandem with the minimum wage law or should the minimum wage law be abolished? Um, Because there is a lot of discussion about that right now. I think given the limited resources that Rafizi has, uh, I think based on news report, the up to about maybe because there's different scenarios right about how much funds they got so there was a few projections about how much government may spend for a year but i think the high, the projection was that it was spent up to two or three billion at least in the first year of the, the first phase of implementation per year so to to have a noticeable impact on the wage market for malaysians i highly suspect that this scheme will only be applied for the malaysians Plus, having dual treatment of uh, labour is not new in Malaysia. So during COVID, you had the, uh, the wage subsidy called Malaysianization, essentially uh, for companies in sectors which are highly dependent on foreign workers, for example, manufacturing transition, for them to hire one Malaysian instead of a foreign worker, they get about 60% or 40% of the salary from the government. So I'm saying that Malaysia, you know, this, this kind of unequal treatment is, is nothing new. And I suspect that 
similar things might be happening for the Malaysian progressive wage model. Just like in the Singapore case, it's only applied for Singapore. I think it will be being implemented together rather than a okay. ideal situation because uh, as Rafizi said, it's voluntary. There's only 1,000 schemes Mm-hmm. the pilot project but even if it expands to 10,000 the mere nature that you have a voluntary scheme means that you need to have a minimum wage law in order to provide at least some semblance of a fair competition among firms right so that firms cannot undercut salaries below whatever the amount is now it's 1,005 yeah and um, which is also the reason why Singapore we have uh, to some extent this progressive wage uh policy because in Singapore there's no minimum wage. Right. So in that sense before progressive wage came in to 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 policy, the Singaporeans could be paid, you know, any amount determined by the firm, right? And a lot of it was directly a reflection of what the foreign labor, especially in some lower wage sector where they were facing the competition. So only after this law came into about in Singapore then you know, there was at least some kind of protection. Whereas Malaysia, because you really have the minimum wage scheme, so I think the progressive wage would just be a top-up scheme, actually. Uh, I, I do think that with the Malaysian minimum wage law, especially increased recent last year, 2005, there is at least some semblance of protection for Malaysian uh, foreign workers. Um, um, just that uh, I don't think, the, at least in the short run, uh, the progressive wage scheme will benefit them because it's probably going to include only Malaysians. Yeah. Right. So going back to the the question, the big picture question, right? When we talk about the the middle income trap that Malaysia is in, the, the wages, how low it is, we, we know for a fact that thousands and thousands and thousands of people um, especially Johorians, because they're right next to Singapore, they choose to go to Singapore every day. They would wake up at four o'clock in the morning and ride their motorbikes or drive their cars right every day. And we know that Malaysians, many Malaysians today would rather go to Australia and pick apples than work in Malaysia. Do you think this is what the country needs right now, this progressive wage model? I'm not saying it's going to solve issues in a day or overnight or anything like that. But is this, are we moving in the right steps, in the right direction with this um, introduction of the uh, PWM? I think the progressive wage itself is definitely not a step in the wrong direction because it tries to encourage firms to increase productivity. But the mere nature that it is voluntary and and the scheme itself is it's not bad, but you also have to have other measures in place. For example, like limit how much, for example, one example could be the quota that firms can hire for foreigners so that they are more incentivized to increase their productivity. Maybe you should also have a high minimum wage. But the thing is that without the other complementary policies, especially on uh, quota for foreign labor in order to prevent firms from taking the easy way out and not increase their productivity. So if you don't have other complementary packages and just expecting progressive wage to be the panacea or even to, to be a, a, a decent solution, I think that's going to be a bit uh, uh, misguided and also naive, right? Uh, as you mentioned that, you know, a lot of Johorians are coming to Singapore to work. Uh, so for context, I think the senior consultant, the Malaysian Public Hospital is about 9,000 ringgit. And in Singapore, maybe a cleaner get about $2,000, which is around... 6,000 plus ringgit. 6,000, 7,000 ringgit. And if we look at progressive wage, the incentive for companies is only 200 ringgit. Right. That's not going to solve the thousands of ringgits worth of salary difference just between Malaysia and Singapore, let alone with Australia, which is even higher wages in Singapore. So um, I think there's a lot more needs to be done. 
to think about progressive wage in the context of other wages, especially now, um, you know, we are still not certain what is the uh, labor migrant agreement with Bangladesh, with countries, because, uh, uh, you know, that one has been a bit stuck with the home uh, uh, and, and also HR ministry, right? So um, it really takes a whole, a revamp of the whole entire ecosystem to increase Malaysia's productivity. And more than that also, to move Malaysia up the value in global supply chain, to, 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 to move Malaysia up in kinds of goods and services they are providing on the global market. Because ultimately, there's a real key, right? So for example, um, a barber in Japan, they might be earning a 10 times salary more than a barber's salon in, in, in Malaysia. That's not because their productivity is 10 times higher than Malaysian. Uh, barber or their products 10 times better it's the same product or maybe a bit better but the key b- difference is because Japanese product at the international market can fetch a higher price than Malaysian goods and services right. and the strength of the export sector has a spillover effect on the domestic sector bit services and others which at the end of the day is about Malaysia's place in the global value chain and how much can you fetch for its exports to move away from just palm oil uh, you know commodities uh, because these are the things that is going to be hard to move on in terms of uh, the value chain and supply uh, productivity. So I think that's a something we definitely should explore in another episode, right? How do we get Malaysia um, higher up on the global supply chain, the value chain in this, this um, sort of globalized capitalist system? But sticking to the progressive wage model, um, what do you think... Um, what can you tell me about Singapore's progressive wage model that many people, especially in Malaysia, may not often think about? So I think the first thing we think, of, uh, as, as I already mentioned, is that it only applies to Singapore residents, which, um, mm. you know, is a bit uh, uh, sort of an anomaly within the global uh, labor practices. The second thing is also, um, there seems to be a concerted effort so the Singapore progressive wage model started in, uh, I think it was 2012 or 2012 or 2014. It's been almost there for 10 years. But at the start, it was only limited to three sectors. So it has really expanded only in the last like few years, right? Especially with more... Um, um, and the challenge for them is really, it's easy to specify when it is a sectorial approach, cleaning, gardening, security. But it's harder when you are applying it to office admin, cashiers, drivers, because these are various sectors would hire these people, you know, it is across the range. So I think it took Singapore 10 years to find you. And we have been seeing, uh, well, starting to see, especially in the projected wage, the, the, the growth, we have been starting to see how the, the medium income and the B20 or B30 in Singapore has closed up somewhat ever since the progressive wage has been launched. But it took 10 years of effort and we are a small, quite a homogenous economy, right? So for a large country like Malaysia, there will be a lot more time to fine-tune, you know, to, to experiment resources. So I would say do not expect quick results in the next 10 years, especially if they're only going to use this one policy and not make sure that it complements and gels well with other policies. And the other thing is that there, there is encouraging results in Singapore. So I think that's something for Malaysia to be optimistic about. 
And before we wrap this conversation up, now, Economic Minister Rafizi Ramli is incredibly keen on this progressive wage model. He's been very passionate about it for a very long time. Um, like you mentioned, you know, there are many flaws with it. And the key thing is that it's not mandatory, it's voluntary. And, you know, what incentive could there be for, for many firms? You know, if they want to rather pay lower salary to their workers, they can get away with it. But with all of the, the flaws, you've also brought up that there's a lot of potential in it. Um, what's the best way to maximize the progressive wage model in a way that will benefit as many workers in Malaysia as possible? So based on what is announced, mm -hmm. um, for the pilot project, it will run for a year, $200 or $300 incentive. I think for one is that the incentive quantum can be increased uh, because, you know, if you want to your workers to have a, I mean, for example, Liu Chin Tong, right? He talks about having Johor having um, four thousand, three to four thousand, basically two thirds of Singapore's uh, medium wages right. in order to attract Johorans to stay in Singapore. So to hit that amount, whereas Malaysia's current wages is around like two k, you need definitely more than two hundred RM kind of incentive to hit that amount. So I do think that the government may obviously considering fiscal uh, scarcity, but could consider having a larger amount of incentive for firms to join the pilot projects. And also, uh, at the same time, to send out clearer kind of um, training and uh, wage ladder schemes. In other words, to um, try to bring it down to the firms and to say what are the criteria that employees have to attend. Because, you know, it doesn't make sense for employees just to attend some uh, skills courses, you know, because, you know, they, they are garden variety of skill causes and we know that some of them aren't really working out as what they plan. So there needs right. to be a bit more of the hand-holding I think with industries to sector it down. Um, plus, given that it's a pilot program, the government could consider a sectoral approach rather than just the broad-based kind of non-large firms which that's all we know about. And this is also about really having a hard look at Malaysia's labour ecosystem and to see about how companies can upskill increase productivity and, uh, and, and, and and provide, uh, I mean, the, the government has really done a step in the right direction, right? To have, um, to table the, it was in the government document to have a decent mm -hmm. a decent work and, and, and it's already part of the government policy. So it has been on their agenda aspirations. So I think the question now is how do you implement that? Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. That was Kevin Zhang, Senior Research Officer at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. If you missed any part of the conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.